Welcome, everybody. I'm Chris Miller, author of the number one best-selling book, Ready for Pre-Retirement, Three Secrets for Safe Money and a Fabulous Future. I'm so honored to be the host of this show called Ready, Set, Retire. Do you lay awake at night wondering if you have enough money to pay bills, let alone retire? In this show, your vision will be transformed, and I will show you how to have safe money and a fabulous future. I've counseled thousands of individuals, businesses, and families over the past 20-plus years, and I'm proud to say I've never lost a dime of my clients' money. I will share with you secrets that I've learned over two decades that only the few rich know about and really have been around for centuries. But in my 22 years of practice, what I see mostly is most people procrastinate and they really don't want to start planning. And that's why we created the word pre-retirement. Plan retirement early so your money, your health, and your peace of mind is there when you need it. What good does a million dollars do if you don't have your health or your peace of mind? So that is why I reach out to all kinds of experts because I think it's very important for you to have a fabulous future to have all everything taken care of. So... Today, I'm really excited to share with you my special guest, Glenda Lee Hoffman, and she is the author of the book, The Genesis Code, and this is some pretty exciting stuff that I think you're going to find really interesting. You know, most of us think of the Garden Eden as a story in Genesis about the past and about the first man and the first woman of the human race. Well, she's going to unveil to us some really interesting things that are going to give you a deeper understanding about what's happening. And I want to welcome you, Glenda Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. I just want to mention it's very important to give the subtitle of my book, Your Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius, because... After I wrote the book and published it, I went to Amazon and discovered there were three other books with the title of The Genesis Code. Hmm. Should have done my homework. Okay. (laughs) Well, maybe you could share with everybody what inspired you to to write this book. Well, this is the culmination of a really a lifelong journey for me. It started when I was five. I know that seems a little ludicrous, but when I was five, I heard a voice. It said, Things are not what they appear to be. And then when I was 11, I had a very in-depth, profound experience with a mystical figure like Jesus or Buddha. And uh, what I came away with in that experience is that I wanted a teacher to teach me how to see. So, And then every experience I've had after that, I call them openings. People call them epiphanies. But they were all geared towards perception and interpretation. And what I discovered in Genesis when I began studying it, which occurred after I had joined a group of people in a contemplative community that was called the Christ Circle. One of the members there gave me a book. It was titled The Cipher of Genesis by Carlos Suarez. And the book is still available. Weezer and Son still publishes it every couple years. And it revealed that the text of Genesis, which includes the two most famous stories in Western civilization, 
the six days of creation in the Garden of Eden, which is all that I studied of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, up to verse 16, was written in a code. The code is not well known, and it's also, the name of the code is the Kabbalah. A lot of people are familiar with the Kabbalah, but they don't know its connection to Genesis. But what I discovered by reading Carlos Suarez's book is that every word in Genesis 1 through 4 up to verse 16 is actually an acronym. So the, the text of this piece of work can be read as words, but it can also be read through the code of acronyms supplied by the Kabbalah. And when you do that, a completely different story emerges that transforms the way this particular text is perceived. Okay, so you, you know, the title of your book, The Genesis Code, you know, you're talking about the subtitle, The Key to Unlocking Hidden Genius. Now, most people are, they're assuming Genesis is a religious text about our relationship to God. Why do you think it's connected to our hidden genius and, and how does it help us develop that genius? It's hooked to our genius because the story of the Garden of Eden is, does not take place in the past. It is a mythological story that reveals the structure and nature of the human brain. And I'll tell you how I got there. The code of the Kabbalah reveals the purpose of the universe. And that purpose is to produce as many possibilities and opportunities and potential as possible. Carlos Suarez defined that in the Cipher of Genesis as all possible possibilities. So the universe is seeded with an intent to produce potential. And science reveals this. Cosmologists and astronomers say that the universe is expanding and that during this expansion process, new matter and energy is created. And we see this in a seed, which is the model that's used in Genesis and in the code in the text. A seed is formed from two opposite, two opposing functions and structures, the husk and the germ, and the interaction between those two creates this same indeterminate potential because every seed that is planted produces a certain amount of fruit, and each of those fruit have within them more seeds, which can then be planted to produce more fruit, which goes on forever. So this reality of how the universe actually functions is contained in every single letter of the code, and then it is reiterated through every word, every sentence, every verse, every chapter, and and both of the stories. So when I understood this dynamic of the integration of these two opposites of husk and germ, I realized that it applied to pretty much everything. And I reduced it down to the words continuity, static continuity for the function of the husk and disruption, dynamic disruption for the function of the germing element. And this integration of these two elements is occurs throughout the coded text of Genesis, and it can be seen very readily 
in the two stories, if you understand that dynamic, if you understand that everything it's talking about starts with this beginning model of a seed-like composition that has this static outer element and this dynamic inner element, if you look at the two stories in Genesis, the six days of creation and the Garden of Eden, which happened to me about two years into my studies, I suddenly realized that one story was an outer story, the cosmology that is in Genesis 1, and actually reveals the process of evolution that science rediscovered several thousand years after this text was written. In other words, the story in Genesis 1 begins with a void, and then there's the Big Bang, light, and then it moves to Earth because it's our story, and we emerged on Earth, but at a, in the beginning, Earth is void, and then it the energy separates into the firmament, which is the planet, and the atmosphere, and this is exactly how evolution occurred on our planet. First, there was this firmament and the atmosphere, and then the the planet was covered with water, and then the land emerged, and then plants emerged on the land, and then animals, and then human beings, male and female. That's the story in Genesis 1, and it's also the story of our own evolution. So, so what exactly is the code? I mean, it's like the Bible code, or is it like... No, it doesn't have anything to do with the Bible code, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So there's the outer story, the cosmology. Then Genesis 2, 3, and 4 shift completely. From Genesis 1, all the imagery in Genesis 1 is very familiar. It's just talking about stars and birds and plants and animals and water and light. These are all familiar everyday elements that we're all aware of and are not unfamiliar in any way. But the minute you move into Genesis 2, we have all these mythological elements. We have a man created from dust and a woman created from his rib. And of course, that's why the story is so famous, because this imagery is so vivid and so unique. And then this woman talks to a serpent who says she'll be wise if she eats this fruit. So the reason the imagery of mythology is used in Genesis 2 is to alert the reader that this is not a continuation of the story in Genesis 1. This is not history. And because I understood the code was representing this model of the seed with its inner and outer elements, I suddenly realized that, oh, this is an inner story. The Garden of Eden is the story of our inner awareness because Genesis 1 ends with the creation of human being and Genesis 2 begins with the creation of human beings, uh, Adam and Eve. And the reason it's doing this is because it's coming from a different perspective. It's coming from the perspective of awareness and of us as human beings awakening to ourselves, to our enormous possibilities, and included in that story is how we become more aware and especially how we learn our place in the universe and our potential, which has been gifted to us by a universe seeking to produce all possible possibilities. And voila, we have this amazing brain that actually is capable of that undefinable quality. 
because in the human brain are 800 to 100 billion, with a B, 800,000 to 100 billion neurons, and each of those neurons has little tips called dendrites, up to 30,000, and each of those 30,000 tips are connected to another neuron. So the number of connections in the human brain is more than all the stars in the sky. And these connections can remodel themselves into different pathways. They can disconnect from one pathway and reconnect in a different configuration. And that can happen anytime. It can happen instantly. It can happen over time. And it can happen over and over and over again. So our brain fulfills the purpose of the universe in producing all possible possibilities. This is what Genesis taught me. So when there's a lot of information out there that, that they talk about the codes and why a code and because it's such complex or why can't this be explained without a code? So to get back to the code, the code uses the letters of the Hebrew alphabet not as elements of language or a linguistic system. So that's the first lesson you have to learn. All the symbols that we think of as the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in the context of Kabbalah are used as simply patterns of energy. It's all energy. Everything is energy. And each of the separate symbols has a little bit different configuration of energy, and yet they're all related. They all interact with each other. It is a complete whole system in itself. And when your brain is presented with this code over and over and over again, and I use the story of Helen Keller to portray this, the brain picks up these signals and it then begins to reorganize itself into an integrated and holistic system as the letters define it. And I know this this seems perhaps fantastical, and yet I experienced this. So I know how powerful it is. And when I had my first experience of actually decoding the first word in Genesis, which took me nine months, it was such a powerful awakening. I define it in the book as imagine giant hands coming out of the sky and pulling the two hemispheres of your brain open so that all the energy of the universe rushes in instantly, all of it at once. Because that's how powerful the experience was. Right. The first word in Genesis, which is six letters and has been translated distortedly as in the beginning, when observed through the code, actually recreates in your mind the original seed of life in the universe with all of its properties and potential. And to actually see that as a living phenomena is mind-blowing. It blew my mind. And the interesting part is that we are there. The potential of us is there from that first seed, scientists say, 13.4. Point four right. billion years ago. Right. Because there is no time and space, right? And right. Really. Then. The, time, the time thing is really um, an earth thing. 
in your yes. reality. It's how, time it, yes, exactly. Right. You got that. And when you, when you discover this code, is this, is this a mathematical code? Is it, or, because I know that no. it has a lot of math that's tied no. to the letter. It's a code that is not associated or aligned with anything that we, that is familiar to us, which is why it is so difficult to study. And it is incredibly difficult to study because nothing in it relates to anything that we think of as familiar because it's all energy. It's all about energy. There's no matter in it. So most of us are used to processing information through our senses, which is all about matter and feelings and sensations. But the information in the code isn't presented that way. It's presented as energy, and it takes your brain, as with Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan, the brain is an instrument designed to respond to stimulus. So every time Annie produced a signal in Helen's palm, it provided a stimulus to her brain. And during the months that Annie began, the beginning months when Annie was introducing this system to Helen, Helen had no idea what she was doing, and it was very annoying to Helen. Those of us who remember the scenes in The Miracle Worker, we remember those incidents of when Helen was a little brat and pushing Annie away because she had no idea what Annie was doing. These little wiggly things in her palm didn't mean anything to Helen. The same thing happened to me in studying the code. Trying to decipher the information of these symbols was maddening and frustrating because they weren't familiar in any way. And yet I was obsessed with it. And it took me years and years and years to understand why I was so obsessed. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized the two incidents that I had as a child somehow planted a seed of intention inside me that didn't germinate until I was introduced to the Kabbalah. And even then, I wasn't consciously aware of it. But that, but that original energy of the intention of wanting to see clearly was driving me subconsciously, and I simply couldn't put it down. I don't know if you've had an experience like that. I know oh, other yeah. people have had, yeah, experiences where you're drawn to something, but you don't know why. Right. And this was my experience with the Kabbalah. I, I was drawn to it. I was obsessed with it, but I had no idea why. And it was maddening and frustrating because I couldn't understand it. And like I said, it took nine months to have that first epiphany of the first word. And after that, of course, I didn't question it because it was so illuminating. It was what like... Did you, the, what did you get as far as illuminating? Maybe you could share with our listeners. What does that mean to you? Did you get... It, it was the, the reality of wholeness. The reality that in life, in the real universe where we live, there is no separation ever. Right. We are in the midst of a pool of energy forever, from the beginning to the end. We are never out of this pool of energy. There's no fall from grace. There's no hell. There's none of the negative connotations that Christianity and some of the other religions have come up with. None of that exists. It's all just a big pool of energy. And we are constantly in it in one form or another, as long as the pool of energy exists. And it will never not exist. So there's no away. 
it's all present, it's all here, it's all now. And well, it's really what people it's really what people are creating that's making it here or now or you know, or they're really creating their own hell. Just I mean Oh, and no. here's the other thing. The more we become aware of the truth of reality, which is that everything is energy and that we are immersed in this energy and that we can move with it and that it has a pattern, the healthier we become. My experience, I never started out to be healthy, first of all, because I didn't know I wasn't healthy, but I never chose to be healthy as a goal. I chose to be aware. I chose to be clear. And every time I got clearer, my health would change and become better through things like improving my diet and quitting smoking and not drinking and those things. But I didn't start out to do those things. My health was a result of the clarity I gained in consciousness. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of people think that the Kabbalah is mysticism or esoteric or it's against Christianity, and but you claim it's it isn't either of those, and actually very practical. What do you mean by that? Because it reveals the structure of energy, and because we are all constructed of energy. I mean, atoms are simply electrons revolving around protons and neutrons, and that's energy. Every molecule is constructed of atoms, and every cell is constructed of molecules, and every tissue and organ and body is constructed of molecules and cells, and all of it is energy. That's why it's practical, and it has very practical results, as my own path reveals. The clearer I became in my own awareness, the healthier I became in my lifestyle, and that's what I mean by practical. So, you know, there's a group of people that actually think that the Bible is an actual spiritual journey that happens inside of people and that really everybody is supposed to be like Christ and have that same consciousness and be in that full awareness. That's really who our full potential is supposed to be. Do you think that this code or the way that this is laid out is, is what you've seen in, in what you're studying? Yes, in fact, the information that I received from the code basically said that whoever Jesus was, was a master of this code. And he revealed that by using the code to spell his name, which is what Abraham did. Abraham began as Abram and then became Abraham because he used a letter from this code. Hey, the fifth letter, which means universal life. He added that to his name to signal to others that he knew the code. Whoever Jesus might be did the same thing. The letters YHWH, which occur for the first time in the Bible in the first verse of Genesis 4, verse 1, referring they're referred to as the Lord. I'll read it to you, that first verse here. And Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived... And there came and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And the Lord is that YHWH, and it has been referred to as Yahweh, which is anyone who does that just shows their ignorance because, like I said, every word is an acronym. And just like modern acronyms, some acronyms can be pronounced like a word. For instance, MAD, M-A-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, can be pronounced MAD, but... 
NCAA can't be pronounced as a word or UCLA can't be pronounced as a word. So they're pronounced as the separate letters. And that's the same for this word, yod heh vav Now, the way that Jesus is spelled is yod heh sheen vav He added the letter sheen from this system to signal to others that he knew the Kabbalah and that his awareness grew out of his familiarity with this teaching. So I do believe what you believe. And he even said it right in the Bible, right there in the New Testament. He said, all these things I can do, you can do. It's right there in black and white. That gets me. That right there, I think that's one of the one of the most inspiring that inspires me. That greater things shall you do. And then to me, I feel a responsibility. Like we're supposed to do greater things than Jesus. I mean, that, you know, like whoa, we want you know use our lives to change the world for peace on earth and do what we can here. Everybody has a gift. Everybody can do something. So. To me, I feel a big responsibility because I feel charged by that. That, to me, that's inspiring. I don't, well, not geez. only that, but the gifts that we have to offer are offered the best way through our expanded awareness. So the first thing we need to do is attain our own expanded self-awareness, which is what the story of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a story that takes place in the brain, and it tells us exactly how to expand our awareness. And it's right there in the part of the story that includes the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the way that that has been interpreted is completely distorted. The people who have interpreted that story to be a fall from grace and Eve to be the tempter of Adam, haven't even read the story clearly because in the story, the command, the actual commandment given to Adam, which is in Genesis 2, and I'm trying to find it right here, it's in verse 16, 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Then in verse 17, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So the commandment is given in verse 16, which says, Eat of all those trees. Then in 17, it's not a commandment, it's a warning. It says, But if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That, it's simply a warning of a consequence. It's not a commandment. So the interpreters even reading the words have completely distorted the meaning. Because what happens right after that verse, and people don't recognize this, is that the very next verse, 18, says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. So then the whole process of creating Eve emerges. Now, the interesting thing is that she only does one thing regarding this tree in the story. One thing that helps him. But it's a big thing. She eats that fruit first. And then she gives it to him. And then they don't die. Now, how this aspect of the story has been completely overlooked 
by traditional interpretations is beyond me because it's right there in black and white. She well, eats the fruit first. A, yeah, yeah. She gives it to him. People don't even realize what happens next. Nobody has paid attention because what happens next is a miracle. It says their eyes are opened. Yeah. Now, they took on on the coats coats of, you know, the flesh. Well, that comes later. The first thing that happens is their eyes are open. Now, this is what occurred to me after I read the code and understood the code, and then I went back and read the words. I went, well, their eyes were already open, so what kind of eyes are these? These are new eyes, and it's signaling, again, an awakening in awareness. Because, first of all, the story in Genesis one begins with light, and then it moves into Genesis 2 into how light is interpreted in the brain as knowledge. And when I got down to interpreting the two words, good and evil, through the code, I was really shocked because they had very similar meanings to the functions of the German the husk. One was a static continuing element, and one was a dynamic disruptive element. Can you guess which was which? Go ahead. (laughs) Good is the static element. It's the husk. Uh And evil is the germ, is the disruptive growing element. Right. Now, why would that be labeled evil? Because man looks at everything that might help him is against him. Even when we go through trials and tribulations, we, or we're getting chastised, we think, you know, or your mom's telling you don't touch the stove, you think, oh, it's against us. So our states of mind are in a fallen state. We don't respond properly. So we think that all these things are against us, but they're really blessings to show us how to be better because we are in school, and I think Earth is school. And so, you know, it's all upside down. Exactly. Our culture... And the institutions in our culture reinforce the idea that disruption is a negative phenomena. When what the code taught me is that disruption is always a birth. Disruption is what ushers in new energy, new possibilities, new opportunities, new potential. So disruption is actually, we want to learn how to embrace it. Right, right. And not refer to it as evil. And this is what Eve sees when she eats that fruit because she realizes it grew from the tree that was germinated from the seed, which carried the pattern of wholeness, which is an integration of opposites, husk and germ. Right. That's what she sees to give to Adam. Say, here, eat this fruit. You're not going to die. You're going to be reborn. Right. And so they eat it. And yes, they are reborn because their eyes are opened. They're reborn into a new awareness. Let me just put this in. So for those of you that have just joined us, you're listening to Ready, Set, Retire. And our guest today is Glenda Lee Hoffman. And she's sharing with us some some info from the Genesis Code, the key to unlocking hidden genius. And it might be a good time to tell everybody how they can be in contact with you. Glenda Lee, maybe you could share that. Sure. My website is www.thegenesiscode.com, and there is a window there where you can put your email, and I will send you a free booklet titled Seven Techniques to Cultivate Your Genius. 
Cool. You can also buy the book on my website or on Amazon. Okay. And again... And Kindle. And the website again is what? www.thegenesiscode.com. Okay. Again, my name is Chris Miller, and you can reach out to me at K-R-I-S at readyforpretirement.com. That's R-E-A-D-Y-F-O-R-P-R-E-T-I-R-E-M-E-N-T.com. And I have a free article on the three myths of financial planning. My website that will show you the, the things that I talk about. But let's get right back to this. I'm, I'm curious about the connection between the Kabbalah and neuroscience. Have you seen any connection there that you want to share with us? Well, what I have learned, see now, I learned all this in the 70s. So I learned about the brain's immeasurable integration and possibilities and potentials in the 70s. But scientists were not studying that in the 70s, and I couldn't find any scientific information to validate what I was experiencing through the code and what I was learning about myself and about the brain and awareness. Not until late in the 90s did I start seeing scientific articles and books that validated exactly what I had learned. But the Kabbalah is still way ahead of science. For example, most neuroscientists still don't recognize that the one element that is unique to human beings and human nature is the frontal lobe of the human brain. Everything else in us came before that frontal lobe and every anatomical feature of our body and brain before the frontal lobe was pre and subhuman. It wasn't until we gained the frontal lobe that we became fully human. And that was only 200,000 years ago. And this little tiny part of the brain that sits right behind the forehead is the distinctive feature of our humanity. And yet most of us know absolutely nothing about it. It has the power, however, to change everything in the brain. Everything. And I learned that from Genesis because that's who Eve is. What is it? What do you mean that's who Eve is? In the story of the Garden of Eden, which is a story that presents us with the structure and function of the human brain, Adam and Eve represent two types of intelligence. Adam represents the masculine type of intelligence, which we call intellect, and Eve represents the type of intelligence that we refer to as intuition. And intuition is something that science does not study, and yet every single one of us experiences intuition, and it always brings us valuable information. I was thinking about that today, but we don't know how to cultivate it because there's very little information anywhere about it and about how to use it and about how to use other properties of the frontal lobe to help us brains for maximum information processing. For example... When we think of ourselves as human beings, we usually think in terms of history, of family, of culture, of evolution. Very seldom do we actually think of ourselves in terms of awareness, consciousness, of we long for a purpose, but few of us find our purpose. 
And yet Genesis told me that our first purpose is to develop our brain as our tool of awareness because it doesn't happen naturally. And the reason for that is because the older parts of the brain that evolved before we became fully human, they have much more powerful neurochemistry and they take over the brain and they subject the frontal lobe to their agendas, which are not human agendas. And that's why most of us are confused and disoriented about life and feel uncomfortable in our own skin because those parts of our brain are hijacking the frontal lobe from its purpose of reorganizing our awareness to recognize that we are all potential Jesus and we all have the power within us to overcome all of our problems, to find peace, to develop love, to express hope, to enjoy happiness and delight, and to make this the major portion of our journey. Right. Right. So, you know, it's fascinating. And you talked about in your book the two incidences from your childhood. And what was the relation to your work with the Kabbalah? How, how well, first of all, those two incidences, the, the voice that I heard that said things are not what they appear to be, and the experience I had with Jesus, which was very involved. It was like a near-death experience. Um, I met him on a hilltop, and he taught me all these things about what it means to be a human. But what I was left with with that experience was that I wanted to see like Jesus. I wanted to have his awareness because I recognized that he had the power to solve his problems and to see the world in this perspective of harmony and happiness and constant renewal of new opportunities and possibilities. And I wanted that. I wanted to have the same level of awareness that he had. I didn't want to just have a gift from him for a moment. I wanted it for the rest of my life. And that was the seed of intention that got buried in me at that time. Because the minute I had that thought, well, please teach me to see, the experience was over. just ended. The curtain came down. And I didn't realize until I was in my 40s that the implanting of that seed was what created my journey. Because after that, I was not satisfied unless I was learning to see in through new awareness. And it wasn't until I encountered the Kabbalah that I learned there was a systematic way to do that. Until then, I was just chaotic. And I mean, by the time I was 23, I was a college dropout and a divorced woman. And this was back in the 70s. So I felt that I was a complete failure in the cultural sense. And yet that was all a prelude to my opening with the Kabbalah, which took me in a completely different direction. It took me away from culture because, and I learned later, that most of our cultural institutions are anti-awareness. They're not interested in making us more aware. They're interested in conditioning us further through fear and intimidation. Right. So my path led me away from that. And it was through my intention to see clearly that I went on that path. 
even though it appeared as if I was failing in my life. Right. And what I learned from that is that we each of us have to go on that journey if we want to wrestle our mind and our awareness away from the institutions which have conditioned it. Because we all grow up in this society, and to one degree or another, we take on the attitudes and values of this society, most of which are anti-life. Right. That most of the institutions, especially the educational institutions, are really husk-oriented. They're really based on static continuity, not on the disruptive element that, that germinates new possibilities and opportunities within our awareness. Now, that's beginning to happen with the Internet, with some people like Sugata Mitra and other people on the way far outer edges of education but the mainstream education has not, hasn't even come close to that yet. <laughs> no, right. It's definitely anti, really. But a lot of the things in this world are set to take us away from spirit and our heart and, yes, and keep us in confusion so we don't find, find the answer and the truth. Why? Again, most of that instigated by the older parts of the brain, which have had much longer to establish their agendas than the frontal lobe. That's why I say on the back of my book, I'm a distinguished member of the frontal lobe society. Well, everybody's a distinguished member of the frontal lobe society. They just don't know it. The frontal lobe is what makes us human. So all of us belong to the frontal lobe society. But until we know it, until we engage the limitless powers of the frontal lobe to reorganize our brain to be our tool for attaining this fabulous awareness, what difference does it make? Well, what exactly, to, for you know, simple for the average person, how can they wrap around this to understand how they can find out more? Well, the thing that, that's one of the reasons I wrote Seven Techniques for Cultivating Your Genius, because these are little exercises that anyone can do. And they were, they were, I don't know how I came up with them. Some of them are familiar, like meditation. Others, uh, and parts of them have been taught by other teachings. I simply pulled together what worked best for me and offer it freely to anyone. You don't have to know the Kabbalah. In fact, I don't, re- I don't recommend that anyone actually attempt to learn the Kabbalah unless you're really driven because it is so difficult. But there are so many things we can do to awaken our frontal lobe that are very simple, and we can all improve our awareness, expand our awareness and our consciousness through them. And uh, one of them is a meditation that occurred to me one day while I was sitting in my chair, and it's now on my website as sort of a little poem that's put to music and a video And you can just go to the website and see it. And then if you put in your email address and I'll send you the booklet, you can read how to do it. And it's a very simple meditation. You do it twice a day for 15 minutes for two or three months, however long you want. And it's a direct connection to limitless energy. And once you make that connection, you find a new source of opportunities and possibilities in yourself. Instantly, it, it's simply there. It opens up because that's the nature of energy. And so we can access it at any time. My seven techniques are simply little, little tricks to 
help your mind move out of a static state and into a dynamic state. That's, you know, I think that's really, really important that everybody, you know, take five and tune in. And we've we've only got a couple minutes left, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, put a cherry on top or, you know, share what you want to share with everybody in in the final moments here. The main thing I want to share is that we all have the potential to be who we long to be and to live the life we long to live, but it requires moving into the unknown because if you knew how to do it, you'd already be doing that. And the trick is that the intellect cannot take us there because the intellect only processes information that is known. The only place that can take us there is intuition, is the frontal lobe, because it knows the unknown and it knows how to take us there. One simple thing, just tap your forehead and say, awaken, frontal lobe. Wake up. (laughs) Wake up. Put your attention there and it will actually work. It takes faith. It takes going without knowing and trust to me, in my experience, and trusting in the unseen, right? That Well, yes. I used to say that my journey was defined by I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I've been and I ain't going back. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good song there, <laughs> for sure. So we, we need to have this willingness to move into the unknown where we're not sure, where we take a few risks. Because that's where our potential is. Right. And just for people to stay open to new possibilities. And actually, in in my opinion, I believe that the Spirit is being poured on the planet right now. And there's a whole lot of people being awakened up right now. I hope so. Well, there's not a lot. (laughs) I shouldn't say a whole lot. Compared to the group, you know, the mass population, it's a handful. But because of the global shift. And well, the, the, the Internet is certainly presenting us with more opportunities than ever before existed. Right. So the potential is there, and I'm very excited to see what happens. It is exciting. And again, everybody, if you want to get in contact with Glenda Lee, then you can go to her website, which is the Genesis Code, and that's G-E-N-E-S-I-S, for those of you that don't, can't, don't spell. That's a good way to get there. And, and you have a little booklet there with some exercises, right? Yes. And please feel free. I'm, try, I'm still trying to figure out how to operate my own web, website. Uh-huh. So I'll be downloading interviews as I learn this and learn how to put the links on my website if anyone wants to hear those. But you can always get in touch with me through the email window that's there. Okay. Well, that's great. And again, my name is Chris Miller, and I'm the host of Ready, Set, Retire. So not only do you want to get your finances in shape, but you want to get your body, your the vehicle you're driving around in shape, and you want to get your spirit in shape. So you have a totally fabulous future, heart, soul, and mind. And I want to, again, thank you, Glenda Lee, for being our guest today. And Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. All right. Many blessings. There's so much to learn about healthy money. I hope today's discussion brings you one step closer to securing and protecting your future. So you can get started on the right foot, 
go to meetwithchrismiller.com and schedule your free financial fitness strategy session. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Money 911 so you don't miss our next episode, which includes health, wealth, and peace of mind.